Well, get rid of me after tonight. It's good to be with you. I want to just tell you how much of a good time we've, we've had here, my wife and I. And uh, after 10 years of being on the road, which isn't that long, uh, but after 10 years of being on the road, of tenant evangelism, and seeing however many churches that equals out to, between 48 and 50 a year, uh, I watch a pastor as he gets up at the end of revival, and uh, there's this longing expressed in his heart that what we're doing and what we're a part of doesn't have to end. And I see that in his, I see that in his heart. Uh, I've seen that week after week after week, year after year after year, we've been doing this. And um, I know one day, and we've already talked about it, that we're, when we get off the road, uh, when I turn about 80, and, uh, you know, and I'm old and... I'm older and I want to, you know, settle down and, and uh, go water skiing and that kind of stuff, uh, which is why I'm working out now, so I'll be able to do that at 80. Uh, I'm going to want to be a part of a church. And uh, when I say I want to be a part of a church, uh, I don't want to be a part of a church that just gathers together on Sunday, that, um, you know, and you're probably always going to have a certain amount of that going on in terms of people coming in and out of the church and and fringe kinds of, kind of people. But I really think that the bulk of the believers should have a mindset. And I've used the term for years now, and it's called a kingdom mindset. It's a kingdom perspective. Meaning that what goes on here on Sunday is a hub of ministry activity kind of a deal. That I come here, and in terms of my involvement in the kingdom of God, and every one of us have an involvement. There is, there's no such thing as being a, a, a spectator in the kingdom of God. It's just not how it is. God doesn't just call people and, uh, you know, just to kind of be a bump on the log and, and not be used. Each and every one of us are an integral part of the kingdom. And so God has strategically placed some that are lucky enough to never leave LaGrande, Oregon. Okay. And uh, so, hey, you were born here. Perhaps you're going to stay here and be raised here. I mean, that's God's lot in your life. And, and you've been called for a purpose. And, and you get launched out of here every week to go out in your world. And, and I've talked with several of you who have businesses and and you work here in town, and, and hey, God's using you out there, and you come in on Sunday, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a hub point where you're launched each week. I want to be a part of a, a, a body of believers like that, where I come in, and Sunday is almost, it's almost opposite to what I'm trying to say. It's not that I come in here on Sunday to get filled up, and then I go run my tank out all week. It's Sunday is the outspill of what's been going on, my, on, on in my life since the previous Monday. I've been in ministry and I've been in ministry and God's doing all this wonderful thing on my, in my life and I come on Sunday to say, wow, and that's when I really cut loose and I have energy because it's the end of the week and the celebration of the harvest kind of a thing. Um, I appreciate you letting me be involved with your church that way this week and uh, just to participate in what you're doing here for the kingdom and it's uh, extremely significant. I want to share with you one last evening out of John chapter 6 and I'm under the impression that you're really going to be familiar with um, verses 25 through verse 59. We've been in it just once or twice. I really believe in saturating in the Word, and uh, which is what I've been doing. And what I mean by saturating is you get into a passage of Scripture, and you and I are so lucky. The pastor's not, but you and I are so lucky that literally we don't have any time crunch. See, it, it, there's an amazing thing to be able to get into the Word and have no pressure to produce. You're just getting in there to seek Him and have Him reveal Himself to you, and He will begin to do that. And when that happens, you're going to need an outlet in your life, which won't be probably up on the pulpit, but it will be in a Sunday school class, or even better, it'll be out on a job site, it'll be in a McDonald's drive through And hey, He reveals Himself in, your, in, in the Word, and you've just, you've just hunkered down, which is a Kentucky term, you just hunkered down into the, into the Word and hey, God's been speaking to you and revealing Himself to you, which is what's been taking place in my own life. We've been in uh, the Gospel of John since college. I shared some of that with you this past week. And what I've been finding is up through the first six chapters, there's been a development 
There's been uh, a progression that's been taking place. It's a part of John's writing style. He introduces several things at the outset of his book, and then he builds on those. And one of the key high points of the book is in chapter 6. It's where a lot of things that he introduces comes together. One of the things that he's been introducing is obviously the message. And the way that John has produced this is Jesus has nailed this for six chapters over and over and over. And by the time you come to chapter 6, it comes to a height, it comes to a a point. In fact, Jesus tells the group that has been following him from chapter 1 that by now, two and a half years later, which is what the first six chapters basically represent, by now, this should have come together for you. And I'm going to press you on this. You need to respond. Are you in or out on this? And by the time you come to the end of the chapter, uh, it's very aggressive. It's so aggressive that the, uh, that the crowd in verse 60 says, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I mean, r- being the real deal, person of God that he's called you to be. I mean, that's, wow. And then Jesus uh, goes on to talk about, hey, does that offend you? And he says a number of really key things. And in verse 66, from this time on, uh, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They said, I can't buy into that. And of course, there are basically 12 that are left. And that's really made known at the end of the book when uh, he is uh, coming into Jerusalem. There's a lot of fame surrounding him. But when it really comes down to the crucifixion event, no one is there for him. No one's there for him. So hey, the, 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 the message that Jesus gives has been uh, climaxing here in chapter 6. So that's one of, the progression, uh, one of the progression focuses. There's been a message that's been narrowed up through chapter 6. Another thing, and this is going to be important for us tonight, another thing that's developed that uh, is being narrowed down is certain groups within the gospel. Okay, And there are basically three of them in our gospel. And I don't want to deceive you. There are two groups... When it comes down to it, there are two groups regarding Jesus. You either believe in him or you do not believe in him. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. So when we get to heaven, it's your in or your out kind of thing. He's going to separate us from sheep as sheep are separated from goats. There's not like, you know, wildebeest in the corner somewhere. There's just sheep and goat kind of a thing. Okay, so he's very narrow, which means, and what I mean by sheep and goat, is that if you are a sheep, you are the, you, are you with me? You have the definition that Jesus gives going on in your life. You're the real deal Christian. If you're not the real deal presentation of the Christian, then you're not in at all. There's not like a lesser form of it. And what I'm getting at is, um, all my life I've heard around the church that there are are several groups or or varying uh, groups in Christianity. Meaning that there's the ideal, okay, you have Jesus and the lifestyle that he demonstrated. And you would ask someone, are you a Christian? Which that's what one is. But they say, no, but I'm not a Satanist either. I'm kind of in the middle. And my mom used to say, well, that person is probably not who they should be. And they'll probably make it to heaven, but they'll be on the outskirts. Yeah. They won't be living in streets of gold. It'll be streets of bronze. That's what it'll be. Kind of like the bronze metal kind of thing. You know, they're hanging on, just barely getting in. Now, that's a wonderful kind of generous orthodoxy. But that's not what we have biblically presented here. Okay? You're either in or you're out. You either embrace him and embrace the lifestyle he calls you to live, or you don't. Okay? So I don't want to fool you. There are only two groups regarding uh, belief in Jesus. You believe in him or you don't. But there are three groups that are presented in this gospel. Okay? You do have okay, Christians, which we call disciples. John uses the term disciples. And then you have non-Christians, those who don't believe. They're called Jews. Now, you have a third group that's really interested in, uh, we've really been interested in. And they're called the 5,000 crowd. Do you get that? They're the 5,000 crowd. See, they're the ones that really, when it comes down to it, they haven't been pressed to make a defining kind of decision until you come into chapter 6. And so we've been watching them as they've been progressing. Now, the bulk of chapter 6 is focused on this 5,000 crowd. And, of course, the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, this is the group that, that Jesus is feeding. Uh, he performs this great miracle, and they respond to it in verse 14. You've already looked at some of this with me this week. Verse 14, it says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they begin to say, Surely, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they say, Hey, look at the miracle that this guy has done. Hey, this is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. Hey, let's make him king. Jesus, in verse 15 knowing 
they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So again, and again is significant, Jesus has constantly withdrew from this group. Every time they want to make him king, he doesn't want to be their king. Every time they try to associate him and their group, he doesn't want to be a part of their group. Because the kind of king that they want is not the kind of king that he came to be. I probably should explain that. We haven't talked about it much this week. But they were looking for a political, um, military kind of victorious figure who was going to come in, throw off the Romans, and set up kingdom on earth. That's not what he was into. The kingdom that he's talking about is a whole other kingdom, which is the focus of what we're going to get tonight. It's not an outside kingdom, it's an inside kingdom. It's an inside deal that Jesus is wanting to bring about in their life. So he flees from them. Doesn't want to be a part of what they want to be a part of. And of course, out of that fleeing comes verses 16 down through verse 21. And we talked about that last night. Jesus walks out across the water in the middle of the night, escaping the mountain, gets in the boat with the disciples, settling their fear, and he goes on over to Capernaum. Uh, of course, the next morning dawns, the crowd realizes that Jesus is not there, the disciples got out of town, and so they say, we've got to go find this guy. So they go over into Capernaum. And verses 25 is, uh, is where we find in the text that they first find him, and a conversation there ensues, and it extends down through verse 59. So verses 25 down through verse 59 is the conversation that he's having with this 5,000 crowd. Okay, you with me? Okay, you've got the audience of the 5,000. That's one of the things that's been developing. Jesus is dealing with this 5,000 crowd and he's talking to them about the message. Now, he addresses them in verse 26. Because they say, hey, when did you get here? And Jesus says, listen, I'm not fooled. The reason you're after me is not because of me. Don't kid me, okay? Don't kid me. You're not my disciple. The reason you're seeking me is because you want food. I can hear your bellies growling from here. He tells them that in verse 26. Then he goes into verse 27, and he says, you've got an inward spiritual problem in your life. And so they, they say, which is almost humorous, it's what we say, we've got this inward spiritual problem, what do you want from us? Oh, you want us to come to church more? Want us to pay, your tithe, pay our tithe? You're wanting to teach Sunday school class, aren't you? Oh, you need someone to help out with the cooking this week? Children's work. See, they, they, they think they can solve a spiritual problem by outside works, by activities, which is typically what we do in our day. Um, obviously probably not your church, but all the other churches in the world have people that do that. And so they say, what works? And Jesus says, there's one thing that's needed, and I'm the answer for that. He presents that in verse 29. So uh, they ask for a sign. He, he defines that sign. And then the bulk of the beginning of the message in the chapter begins from verse 35 and extends through verse 40. And that's where the just he plain flat lays out the message. Now, what I want to look with you tonight is... Another group that surfaces. See, Jesus is talking with the 5,000 crowd. He's presenting them the message. And it's heavy. It's good stuff. He's talking to them. Hey, abandon, abandon uh, uh, your ideas of the kingdom and embrace the call that I'm giving you. Get all wrapped up into me. I'm the one that's going to bring fulfillment in your life. Hey, let me be the focus in your life. This is what we're talking about. And in the midst of that explanation, another group surfaces. And the group that surfaces uh, are the Jews. You, you read about them in verse 41. It says, at this, the Jews begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say I came down from heaven? So you have this group, the Jews. Now, we didn't get specifically... Uh, we didn't get to this sermon this week. Uh, it's a study called The Grumblers. And some of you have already talked about it. It's out on our table. And it's really significant because they begin to grumble. The Jews begin to grumble. Grumbling is a telltale sign of an inward spiritual problem that John gives us. See, the natural response of an inward spiritual problem is grumbling. See, they're not confused. You can't look at them and say, see, it, the text doesn't say, he came down from heaven. Well, that's kind of confusing. Isn't he Joseph's son? That's not how he presents it. They, they're not confused. They grumble. In fact, this is how Jesus addresses them. He says in verse 43, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, listen, you can't, this is so significant, you can't come to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. In other words, they haven't been responding to the Father, why would they respond to Jesus? Jesus is the physical representation. He is the outspill of the Father. And if they weren't into the Father, why would they not be into Jesus? I mean, hey, they wouldn't be. 
So they haven't been responding to God, so they're not going to respond to Jesus. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I've been in so many revivals where, and it's not a judgmental statement, but I've been so concerned about certain people in the revival. You have a service that will be absolutely phenomenal. I mean, God will be moving and it's not based off the preacher and what he's preaching. In fact, I've preached some services sometimes where I'm up there thinking, oh, this is just, I've blown the whole thing. And people respond and you think, wow, how did that happen? And you've been in services like that where God just moves and it's phenomenal. And you sometimes will have a grumbler. Okay, they're a grumble, I forget the theological word. It's, oh, it's grumble butt, that's what it is. Uh, and they just, they're the person that it never goes right for them. They're never satisfied. They're the ones that are sitting in the back. They've got their arms crossed and they're just... For instance, worship. God will be moving. Teens will be excited. People will be going, yes, and it's great. And God will be... It'll be fantastic. And they'll be bent out of shape. Why? Well, someone's doing this. And I just can't worship with that kind of thing going on. I just say... Who can? See, it's that kind of... They miss the reality of Him moving in the midst of... I've heard like choruses. Well, I just can't worship that. They call them seven elevens, you know, seven words, eleven times. And I can't, uh, I can't worship that. And they see, they just, in the midst of God moving, they're so caught, see, that's an inward kind of a, they absolutely miss the radical movement of God in their midst because they're so bent, there's something going on on the inside. See, that's, that's what's going on with this group. The telltale sign is, if they're grumbling like that in a service where God is moving, could you imagine what their spouses put up with on Monday through Saturday? <laughs> Some of you aren't laughing, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, this is just... I mean, it is horrific. If, 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 if people are uptight and bent and just rigid and all of that kind of stuff in a service, can you imagine how they drive vehicles on the freeway? I mean, does that make sense? Can you logically follow that? That's this group. This group is hearing out of the mouth of Jesus the very word of God and they're not buying it. And Jesus says, I'll tell you why you're not buying it because you haven't been responding to my, my father. And of course, in other gospels, he goes into how, hey, you've crucified the prophets. Hey, you've, you've killed every prophet that God has sent to you. You've never listened. You've never obeyed. You've never been involved. Hey, is it any wonder that you're not going to pay attention to me? That you're not going to believe me? So when Jesus says, stop grumbling, it's not that they're confused. It's a willful kind of disbelief. Hey, I am not into believing. Okay? Now, in response to that, after Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves, I want to look with you specifically at verse 44 and 45. He says again, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. In other words, you guys, and we talked about raising them up at the last day earlier this week, this is an eternally significant moment for them. This is a defining character, uh, a, a, just a character-forming time in their life. And then in verse 45, he drops a prophecy. He grabs a prophecy and he pulls it in. Now, first off, when Jesus uses prophecy, and I can say this probably uh, with an overarching statement regarding all of Jesus' uh, use of prophecy throughout the uh, Gospels, but specifically in the Gospel of John, when he's using prophecy, it is, it is a validation of, I want to say this correctly, because I don't want you to jump me after the service, but it is a validation of his ministry. And it's more than a validation, I should say. It is, hey, everything that I'm doing is not come about by my decision. It is the outfolding, the unfolding of the dreams of God even before the foundations of the world. The whole life of Christ was talked about before it ever came to pass. So when Jesus is preaching, see the content of his message here in chapter 6. You see, this is the time. You understand, the people of Israel have waited for this for 2,000, 3,000 years. I mean, they've been sitting on the edge of their seat waiting for the promised Messiah to come. And he's come. So this is an outfill. This is an, an outspilling of the plan of God. God has been dreaming. God has been working. God has been bringing about this moment. He has waited on this. And now he has come. And Jesus says, listen, everything that I'm telling you is what the prophets have said. This is what the prophets said. Okay? So the prophets are a validation, uh, a reference point to confirm all that Jesus is saying. And they're confirming a couple things specifically. And what they're confirming are these things we're going to walk through tonight. Just two things. The first thing, when he gets to this prophecy, what the prophecy is confirming is where God wants to be. 
That's how, that's why, how he uses this prophecy. The prophecy is wanting to confirm in his message where God wants to be. And the second thing is, we have where God wants to be and why he wants to be there. Really significant. He references this prophecy and he says, listen, everything that I've just told you, they've already said this. God has been dreaming this. And it's what's God dreaming about? Where he wants to be and what he wants to do there. Now, when you get to the specifics of the prophecy, um, notice he says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets. He does not quote one particular prophet. See, this is the, it's kind of like the tone of the prophets. If you were to go back and look at all the prophets had said, every single one of them were speaking about what God was going to do in my day, which is just fantastic. All that God was speaking to the, uh, through the prophets was to teach you about really what he wanted to bring about in me and through me is what Jesus is saying. So he's not really quoting one prophet, uh, which is why he says it is written in the prophets. Now, my translation translates, they will all be taught by God in parentheses or in uh, quotations. And there's a little A uh, after that. And if you go down to the bottom of my page, it says Isaiah 54, 13. And so they take that statement and they link it to Isaiah 54, 13, which is probably the closest um, translation or the closest reference to an Old Testament prophet, that particular statement. Does that make sense? He says, hey, they will all be taught by God. In other words, everything that I've been telling you, the prophets have already said it, and this is how they said it, they will all be taught by God. They will all be taught by God. And, th and that is actually a statement out of Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13. And I'll read that for you just really quickly. I want you to turn back with me to uh, another prophet. And I, just for the fact that I don't want you trying to keep up uh, with me, because we're going to look at three different prophets. Uh, I want you to turn back to the book of Jeremiah, because you always listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Um, verse 31, or sorry, chapter 31. And while you're turning there, the direct quotation out of my Bible is, uh, again, in Isaiah 54, verse 13. And this is what Isaiah the prophet, and it's really a, a profound statement because uh, you guys all remember, uh, everyone remembers that the Isaiah 52 and 53 passage is the direct passage that talks about the ministry of Jesus. He's the suffering servant. It goes in detail about his death on the cross. Isaiah foresees this. God is telling the people of Israel that this is where you have been in broken relationship with me, but I'm going to send my suffering servant who's going to redeem you, and this is how it's going to unfold. And then after that unfolding, after the description of that, in Isaiah 54, because of the ministry of Jesus, this is what's going to take place. An aspect of that is in verse 13. All your sons will be taught by the Lord and great will be your children's peace. So literally, a product of the ministry of the suffering servant, who is Jesus. See, Isaiah is talking about the same thing that Jesus is talking about in chapter 6. Hey, the product of this guy's ministry is that your children are going to be taught by God. Now, this is really significant because when you, when you look at that prophecy and Jesus says, all your sons will be taught by God, he's not talking about, and this is going to cause you to put your thinking caps on, when I first read that, I thought that's describing Jesus is standing there teaching them. And Jesus is God and he's teaching them. So all your children, all, all, you know, hey, all your sons and daughters will be taught by God. Jesus is God. He's teaching them. That's not really what's taking place. That prophecy, and of course that is taking place. Jesus is God and he is teaching them. But when he says all your sons and daughters will be taught by God, what he's talking about is there's a shift that God's going to make from an Old Testament time to a New Testament time. There's an old covenant way in which God taught, and then there's a new covenant way in which God taught. Even when Jesus is preaching, the Holy Spirit has not been given yet at Pentecost. We know that. Okay, so Jesus is, in some respects, and he's even called the prophet, because all other prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the, is the prophet. He is the fulfillment of what every other prophet was supposed to be. Or they were all in his shadow kind of a deal. So he is preaching... And his preaching is in almost an Old Testament form, meaning that God is speaking to them from the outside. That's an old covenant kind of structure in the way God teaches. Uh, the giving of the law. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that Paul uh, uh, 
He deals with some of this. Beginning in chapter 4, and you might have read this, and, and, the, and the, uh, one of the titles of the sections in, in my NIV is the ministers of a new covenant. That we're all ministers of the new covenant. And what's the new covenant about? The new covenant is not God dealing with man from an outside point of view, like Moses dealt with the prophets. And then if you remember the passage, Paul talks about how Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's up there for 40 days. He comes down and his face is glowing. Remember this? From being in the presence of God. So what does he have to put over his face? A veil. So he puts his veil over his face while he's speaking. And Paul says, hey, that's old stuff. We face our world with unveiled faces because literally our faces shine from the outside in terms of a God outside making us glow. Hey, he's on the inside of our bodies. So literally there's a shift from an outside kind of a teaching, God barking his orders out with, uh, at me. Hey, he's on this mountain and you need to do this, do that, do this. And you're writing them down as quickly as you can. And hey, that's outside kind of a deal. See, the New Testament is that there is going to be a movement to the inside of my body. God literally wants to be inside of you. Okay? So the teaching that Jesus is talking about, saying that they will all be taught by God, is a shift from an old covenant outside God to a new covenant inside God. He's, the, the prophets say it better. Let me just give you what they say. I told you to move to Jeremiah, because everyone listens to the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 31 In verse 33, Jeremiah the prophet prophesies about the coming relationship that we're going to have with him as Christians, as blatantly as I can say it. Verse 33, he says, this is the covenant, check this out, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Oh, isn't that good stuff? See, he's saying, what Jeremiah the prophet is saying is you guys don't realize, a day is coming when the outside relationship with God that we have is going to be radically changed. There's going to be a shift. This outside relationship is going to change to an inside relationship. See, you're not going to need anybody coming around saying, hey, believe God, believe God, because He's going to be inside of you. I mean, how much, how much more can you know someone when they crawl down inside of your body? See, this is the dynamic that Jesus is talking about. This is the tone of the prophets. When Jesus quotes this statement, they will all be taught by God, He's stressing the shift from an outside to an inside. Does that help? Let me give you another one. Turn to Ezekiel. This is another passage that can probably be tied in with uh, the John chapter 6 passage. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I want want you to turn over to verse, verse 24. I've been chewing on this for about a month now. So I'm spitting out to you in a few moments, what I've chewed on for a month, and I'm just expecting you to just swallow it all and understand it completely. I mean, I don't don't really see the problem in that. So, uh, process with me, if you will. Chapter 36, verse 24, this is what Ezekiel says. Again, he's prophesying about what we have. It's the same thing Jesus is saying. In fact, Jesus is referencing these guys. Jesus is saying, this is what they're saying. He says in verse 24, I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. Verse 25, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. You see how that's inside stuff? See, that's an inside work that Ezekiel's talking about. See, the, the, the old covenant was, I mean, hey, everything was outside. They had outside God following them or or, or leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They could look out and say, there he is. But see, the new covenant is a shift to the inside. So he says, hey, I'm going to put a new heart in you and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, verse 27 says, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. He says, I, in fact, the NIV translates that move. I think the New King James translates it cause. That God is going to come down inside of you and there is going to be, a, there is going to be an unction. 
There's going to be a drive. There's going to be a compelling. God is going to move. It's no longer going to be compelled from an outside. Go do this. He's going to come down and live inside of our body. And we're going to be driven by the inside. Do you see that shift? So when you're in John chapter 6, if you want to turn back there real quick. When you're in John chapter 6 and Jesus says to them, Hey, listen, Jews. Listen, my opponents. Stop grumbling. They've got a spiritual problem inside them. He says, everything I'm telling you, which all the language that I've been using is the shift language from the outside to the inside, I didn't come up with this. The prophets have been screaming this at you forever. Because what the Jews are so upset about is all of their traditions, see, all of their laws. Um, I'm, I'm compelled to give you a small example. When you go back and look at the ministry of Jesus and specifically his miracles, the miracles that Jesus does... 99.9% of the time, they come in conflict with or break an old covenant tradition. The easiest example of this is in chapter 5 when he heals a man. The Jews go absolutely berserk over this. And why do they go berserk? Because the day on which he healed the man was the... See, Jesus' ministry is threatening to them. And I'll tell you this, anyone who has that outside relationship with God, I come to God on Sunday and I wave at him. I give him $20. See you next Sunday. Anytime they hear the message of the gospel, that grinds against them. It is abrasive. Because that is an old covenant kind of a deal that died 2,000 years ago. And that no longer exists. God will not tolerate us having an outside relationship with him. He moves within the inconfines of our life. This is the thrust. And as I told you at the beginning of this study... Everything that he's been proposing here in chapter 6 has been proposed at the beginning of the book and it's been developing. Can I give you just a couple examples of this? Go back with me to chapter 3. Nicodemus is a leader of Israel. And Nicodemus is struggling with this shift. That you have an outside God that wants to move on the inside. You have an outside God that has dealt with you on outside kind of terms. Go to the temple, offer these sacrifices... Uh, do these kind of things, hey, stand in this kind of a way, eat these kind of foods. It's all been outside relationship. And then when Jesus comes, he says, hey guys, all of that's gone. The prophets have been telling you this day is coming and everything's moving to an inside kind of a relationship. And Nicodemus, this is really hard for him to buy. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Nicodemus, uh, look with me at verse 5. Jesus tells Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. That's the born again kind of language. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So the whole tone, the whole, the whole uh, guts of, the, uh, of what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about is, listen, you've been in the flesh category. It's not that you're bad. But flesh gives birth to flesh. What I'm inviting you to is the Spirit. The Spirit can only produce what the Spirit produces. Flesh cannot produce the Spirit. So he introduces this in chapter 3. And he does a little bit before, but that's really plain. When you go into chapter 4, let me give you another example. In chapter 4, Jesus is talking... This is probably my favorite. This is probably my favorite. When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman... um, She's all caught up in the physical outside details as well. And Jesus is pulling her from, hey, God wants to move you from the outside relationship to the inside. He doesn't want to meet you here on Sunday. You drive by on Wednesday. See you on Sunday. Can't make it tonight. Go on fishing. And then, you know, hey, see you on Sunday. And he wants to move from that kind of relationship to moving down to the inconfines of your heart. So when you leave here, you don't leave God here. You take him with you down the road. You drag him into your high schools. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? Okay, Uh, so Jesus is talking to this Samaritan woman. I want you to look, he introduces this to her in verse 13. And Jesus is talking about water. You guys know this story. She comes, uh, you know, he asks for a cup of water, and the whole deal is over water. And hey, and he says, if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water. She's talking, she has, she can offer Jesus physical water. Outside detail water. The water Jesus offers will become a spring that will well up where? It's a focus. God wants to move from the outside 
from putting band-aids on your life. He wants to renew you from the inside. It's a shift from the outside to the inside. He tells her this in verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's an inside thing. And then again, he repeats this to her. She's kind of hard-headed like I am, so she doesn't get it. So you go down in a few more verses, and she brings up this, uh, the temple issue. And again, she's talking about a physical outside temple. And I don't know if you know anything about the Samaritans, but they had their own temple, uh, and it goes way back to the Babylonian, uh, ex- where they relocated, uh, just as a whole big old long thing. Persians and they relocated people there in Samaria and their mixed blood and all this. So they had their own temple. They had their own set of the law. There was no prophets uh, in, that, in, their, in their scriptures. And that's the temple where they worshipped. And then, of course, you had the Jewish temple, temple in Jerusalem. So they had two different temples. The Samarians uh, worshipped at one. Jews worshipped in the other. And she says, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, we worship at our temple. You worship at your temple. Well, again, that's physical kind of stuff. Look what Jesus says in verse 21. Believe me, woman. <laughs> he says, uh, believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his spirit as worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. So he says, listen, the real deal kind of worship is not going to be taking place in a physical location. It's going to be an inside kind of a deal. In fact, when it comes down to it, this building is not the house of God. We are the house of God. I was traveling with Dr. Manley in 1997, and we were up in uh, this northern end of the country, I won't say the camp, because this is actually on recording. Uh, but uh, at w- after one of the services, some of the teens, a couple of the you know, crazy adults, and th- a couple of us interns began a victory march around the camp uh, tabernacle, which turned into a victory run, because it started over there, and we had to hurry up and get there. So we ran over there, and then they saw us running, so they ran, so we just never caught up. So it just turned into a victory run. Well, <laughs> in the middle of that, this, this guy... I thought he was going to assault me with his cane. He steps out in the middle of the aisle like he was Zorro with this cane. He's, you know, right at me. And I had to stop. And he said, don't run in the house of God. And in my foolishness and, and young kind of way of dealing with things, I said, I am the house of God. And then I just ran around him and went on. <laughs> but I got that from this passage. See, the deal is, is that God's house is not a place we go to physically. Can you imagine the ramifications of that? You know how foolish the world is when they say you can't take Jesus in school. How can you not? Wake up. Teens, you are the presence of Jesus in math class. Period. In fact, I'll tell you adults, you're the only Jesus that some people are ever going to see. The days of revival being the time when all your lost friends come to church are over. Unless you drag them here or bribe them. People do not drive by and say, oh, revival, I think I'll go tonight. (laughs) They don't do that. Do you know why they're going to come? They're probably going to come when you get a small group, which means meets during the week, where you guys all get together, you're all Christians, you get together, you get in the Word, then afterward you do a fun activity, like you 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 watch Lost or something. And so, hey... One of your buddies calls you on Thursday night and says, hey, we're getting, rather, uh, getting, to getting together to play racquetball down here at the uh, workout facility. And, uh, oh, okay, I'd like to do that. When are you doing that? Thursday night. Oh, I can't, man. i got a group of guys that's meeting at my house. Oh, really? What are you guys doing? We're going to watch Lost. It's going to be great. Come on over. So you invite them. <laughs> you invite them. So, and this is how the small group mentality works. Hey, you, these guys are... You, the purpose of getting together is fellowship in Jesus and having a good time and you get into His Word and you invite this guy and he comes at the end of the Bible study. He shows up. He sees you all in prayer you get done and hey he, he gets see he comes to your church without coming into your church and then he gets to know you guys and he appreciates and God's working in that and you know him and that kind of develops and finally he goes I mean you guys are something else you say you should see the rest of us <laughs> we're down the road at the building come on Sunday and we really get out of 
See, that's the mentality. It's, see, it's not an outside kind of a thing. It's, it's, it's an inside deal that I take and I infuse into my world. See, this is the ministry. And Jesus has been talking about this up for, through the first six chapters. It gets hot and heavy in the chapter. And uh, there are several examples of this. Uh, in chapter 6, I know we've looked at verse 45. And Jesus is validating all of this with the prophets. I hope that makes more sense now. What Jesus says is, listen, everything that I'm telling you, everything that I've been talking about for six chapters, to Nicodemus, to the Samaritan woman, to you, the 5,000 crowd, the prophets have said this. I mean, Ezekiel said that God's going to put his spirit inside of us. Jeremiah said, I'm going to write the law. said, God's going to write the law on the fleshly tablets of my heart. We're all going to be taught by God. Not taught by God by the preacher standing up here, but he's going to come down inside of our life and teach us which is going to be phenomenal. And this is some of the meaning of the bread of life. Uh, Jesus, um, see the Jews are arguing, they're grumbling about Jesus being the bread that has come down from heaven. See, the contrast is, they're asking for, the 5,000 crowd is asking for the manna, the same kind of bread that Moses gave. Jesus says, hey, I can give you that kind of stuff, but your fathers ate it and they died. And I'll give it to you and you'll die. The bread that I want to offer you will go, it's me, I'm going to go down in your body and produce a life that can never be taken away. It's an inside thing that's got to take place in your life, is what he said. And he gets livid with that. I mean, just, just oh, in their face with that. Hey, this has to happen. This is the deal. This is what God wants to do in your life. Now, so that answers the first question. Jesus quotes the prophets to say, this is where God wants to be. Not on a hill somewhere where we drive by and we're offering money and we come by and visit him. God literally has left that hill to come down and, and dwell inside of us. The book of Matthew describes it vividly when the veil of the temple is ripped open and torn in two. And they put that veil there to keep God back there. Because it's dangerous when you get God out of there. Do you know the story of the priests? That only once a year the high priest would go back there to do the offerings? you know they would tie a rope around his waist? If he died, I'm not going to get him. Pull him out. That was the deal. Because you didn't go back there. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil? God went out of there. No, So he's no longer caged. He's in here kind of deal. So where does God want to be? Inside of your body. Dwelling inside of you. Not like in your mind, he's in my heart. He literally wants to come down inside of your body. Now the big question is, what does God want? What's the purpose of God moving from a mountain to inside of my body? He answers that again with the prophets. He says, they will all be taught by God. Now you say, what do you, this is what I ask, what does he mean? God wants to come down inside of me and he wants to teach me? Well, can't he do that from out there? No. See, there's a difference between an outside teaching and an inside teaching. You would say, what do you mean? Jesus, I could go through it with the bread of life, but he says it so plainly to his disciples in chapter 16. I want you to turn there just really quick. In chapter 16, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about the work of the Holy Spirit. If you're familiar with chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, this is right before Jesus gets captured uh, and taken away and crucified. He has this long discussion with his disciples and he says, listen guys, in a few hours I'm out of here. They're going to take me, they're going to nail me to the cross, it absolutely has to happen. And why does it have to happen? Because unless I leave, the Holy Spirit won't come. And if the Holy Spirit won't come, I'm going to remain outside. But the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to come down inside of your body, and He's going to reveal me to you. He's going to teach you about me in a way that I could never teach you. <laughs> this is so good. Can't wait to share with you. Look with me, for instance, at chapter 16, beginning at verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, and in my translation, counselor is, uh, is, uh, is capitalized. That's the spirit. Notice the Holy Spirit takes on the name of a teacher. You're your guidance counselor. What does he do? He gives you counsel. He teaches you, gives you direction, guidance. That's what John calls him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come down inside your body and they're all going to be taught by God. He's the counselor. He's the teacher. He says, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regards to sin 
and righteousness and judgment. Now, before we go into that, he uses the word convict, which is also the word, what is that word? Rebuke. And it's the same word, you don't have to turn here, I will uh, just read it to you. It's the same word that's used in chapter 12 of Hebrews, and I'll just read this to you, where the Hebrews author writes, uh, have you forgotten that the the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons, meaning if you're a Christian, you're called a son of God, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So literally, as Christians, we get rebuked. We have discipline. But it's not like an outside discipline where a stick appears out of the sky and cracks our wrist. Uh, You know, hey, it's the inside kind of rebuke. We call that conviction. When you're sitting in this service and God is speaking to you, He's coming in and literally you feel an inward kind of a conviction. Not an outward thing. It's an inward kind of a deal. That's specifically for Christians. So he says he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then he explains those. Verse 12. This is the part that's really good. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. What Jesus is saying is you can't bear what I'm about to tell you because it's an outside thing. Uh, In the last probably six months, I've used this, this passage in two or three different studies as an illustration because it's so powerful. Jesus says... In verse 12 of chapter 16, he says, you can't bear what I want to share with you. You can't bear it. Because it's, it's an outside kind of a deal. Uh, the word bear means uh, it's a foundational term. In other words, they don't have the foundation to understand what he's trying to communicate. Let me give you an example of that. Um, some of the games that I've introduced to my son, he cannot bear them. My son's pretty sharp and he's... Uh, Way beyond where I was at his age, my mom says. She's not afraid to tell me the truth. And um, so instead of just playing his games with him, I've tried to introduce to him some of my games. But some of them are more than he can bear. Uh, For instance, I introduced him to chess. And it was interesting how he responded to chess. Uh, I would move my queen, he would grab her and chuck her. That's cheating. You can't do that. And uh, at first I thought he was rebelling and he was cheating. And (laughs) that's not the case. It's, it, it wasn't a choice. He just couldn't grasp it. It was beyond him. It was more than he could bear. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. He says, what I want to tell you, you can't bear it. It's beyond you. Why? Because you cannot grasp what God wants. The only way you can grasp what God wants for you is if he moves on the inside of you and teaches it to you. Because knowing God is a revelation thing, not a brain kind of thing. Knowing God is an inside, He teaches you kind of a thing. This is what He says. Look what He says in verse 13. He says, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to Me by taking from what is Mine and making it known to you. Now go down to verse 16. And He says, In a little while, you will see Me no more. And then after a little while, you will see Me. Notice that he's talking about seeing. But in our English, it's deceiving. The first word for see is actually a different Greek word than the second word for see. When he says, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, two different Greek words. The first Greek word is for physical sight. It's the Greek word that expresses physical sight. So he says, in a little while you're physically not going to see me anymore. Because I'm going to ascend after the resurrection, after the 40-day appearances, I'm going to ascend and you're not going to physically see me anymore. He says, then after a little while, you're going to see me. That Greek word is the Greek word for perceive. Which again, fits the context when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in your body, you're going to see me in a way you never saw me before. Because he's going to reveal See, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to you in a way that you could never... And it's phenomenal. Do you realize that if the disciples had never received the Holy Spirit, even though they've been with Jesus for three years, if they never had received the Holy Spirit, they would not know Jesus like you and I know Jesus. Because knowing Jesus is not an outside kind of being around the church all my life. Knowing Jesus is an inside teaching revelation of the Holy Spirit. See, the the, the phenomenon of what Jesus is saying in chapter 6... The guts of his ministries. He says, listen, Jews, listen, grumblers. 
Here's what I'm trying to get you into. God wants to move down in your life and wants to teach you from the inside. Now, what would be the practical application of that? Probably went around the room, there'd be several of you who could apply that very quickly. Here's how some of the ways that I've applied this. This immediately came to my mind. Back when I had the outside view of Christianity, my outside view was, okay, I had do's and I had don'ts. I had a lot more don'ts than I did do's. Some of my don'ts were, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay, don't lie, don't steal. You know, and I had all the law in there. Okay, a lot of don'ts. And then some do's as well. But the problem was, as I was constantly finding myself in circumstances, that didn't fit any of my don'ts or do's. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I come into a situation. Oh! And I carried this list around. I used this illustration like six, seven years ago. I dumped it for a while. But, because everybody made fun of me all the time about it. But I carried this list around. And it was my do's and don'ts list. If I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to do these things and don't do these things. But the problem was, first off, that list kept growing. Okay? The second thing was, I was running in circumstances where I was like, oh, what do I do? Well, it's not on my list. What do you do with that? And there were certain things that the Bible just does not address. I mean, hey. I mean, what do you do in this situation? And, and how does this work? And, well, I mean, what do I do with this? Commercials. You know? Um... Home videos. That may not be a big deal here in Indiana. You can't go see a movie, but you can rent it and take it home. So I figured that one out. Um, list kind of stuff. Okay, hey, you can't do these kinds of things. And what's an activity? And, you know, and, 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 and hey, the Sunday is a day of rest. Well, what's resting? And see, our li- my list got really difficult because, well, resting meant no activity. So in other words, I couldn't go out and play basketball on Sunday as a kid. Now, we'd watch it on, in the afternoon on the television, but that's okay. But I couldn't go out and play it, which was retarded. That didn't make any sense to me at all. I couldn't go out and play it, but I could watch it on TV. See, that was, see my list got all... That was an outside kind of contradictory kind of a, a viewpoint kind of a thing. My life began to change when God said, Jeremiah, do me a favor, burn that thing. Praise the Lord. Burnt that. He says, I want you to come over here and I want to move on the inside of your body and I want to go to the movies with you. I want to play basketball with you. I want to go on your... Hey, you want to go on a date? Go on a date with Jesus. And I want to go hang out with, on Friday with my friends. Honestly. I want to take him to the gym with me. I, I am not going anywhere without you because you're coming inside of my body. And there's a prompting. There is a... It's the kind of thing where you're watching a TV show and something comes on that show that just... On the inside... And you find yourself saying, not interested in that. And someone's going to say, why? And the only explanation you can have is, I don't think he's interested in that. How do you know? I can... Because I'm beginning to get tight with him and I know what upsets him, I, somehow it begins to upset me. Jokes. You know, how, what joke's bad, what joke's not bad. And, what, hey, what, and there are some jokes that just, I don't, he doesn't think that's funny. See, there's an inside in the relationship with my wife. See, there's a standard. and See, he's involved in the conversations that I have with her. And, and in, the, in, in some of the television shows, my little boy watches. I mean, what, does, what do I allow him to be entertained with? Some of the shows we don't let him watch, people might say, well, that's not bad. Yeah, but it's not him. It's not him. It's no longer about right and wrong or good and bad because that's a list kind of thing. It's just, it's not him, man. It's not him. And there's a prompting. In other words, he's involved in my parenting. He's involved in my driving. And I find myself laying down my rights. Because if it was in an outside kind of relationship, a good and bad measured kind of relationship, I could demand my rights. But see, what Jesus did all the time was he let go of his rights. Hey, I don't need to get what I deserve. I don't have to demand my rights. In fact, Jesus talked about losing your life and pouring out your life. And I feel so sorry, to be, if I could really be honest about it, I feel so sorry for people who come to church who are still stuck in the old kind of outside relationship with God. I, don't have the, I can't use the strong enough language in this kind of a setting to describe what I really think about that. It's horrific. That's as close as I can come. It's really bad. It's no fun at all. It's horrible. 
It's horrible. In fact, that right there ran me away from church. Religion killed me. Jesus is what saved me. Because you take Jesus out of anything we do here, and I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. I've ate enough potlucks that will satisfy me the rest of my life. I'm done with that kind of thing. I'm serious. I'm done with that. I'm into Him. I'm done with gathering together and singing. I want to worship. I'm done with dropping money in an offering plate. I want to tithe. I want to participate in a kingdom. See, I'm done with prayer meetings. I want to get into conversations with Him. I want to gather with a group of people and cry out to Jesus. See, there's two different things. I'm done listening to sermons. I want to hear Jesus speak and reveal Himself in my life. There's a movement that takes place from an outside to an inside. Do you have that? Do you have that? Can you say, I am being taught by God? That He's going down with me to my high school, He's going down with me to my workplace, and I am seeing with new eyes, I'm feeling with new hands, because He's raging inside of my body. I can't tell you what I'd give to have that. <laughs> To know that when I'm, that I'm involved with my son and I'm holding my daughter and I'm, I'm, hey, his hands are in, that's profound. That I can take Jesus in the most vilest of circumstances and settings and Jesus comes just roaring in the middle of that scene. When your son or daughter is absolutely living in just riotous, just way out, rebellion, destroying themselves and they're calling you, you realize that they, because of you, they are literally front, face to face with Jesus and interacting with the person of Jesus. You become the light in your world. Is it any wonder Jesus says, you are salt and light, man. Jesus, how, how can you get that across to us? That when the revival ends tonight and we walk into our jobs tomorrow morning, we are carrying the God of the universe Jesus, we want to be your skin. I want to be the skin of Jesus in my world. Put me on like a suit in the morning. I'll no longer suffer from nightmares. Can I, can I go to bed at night saying, Jesus, could my mind rest in you? Could you grant me sleep and rest for my body? I want to submit every, every internal organ I want to submit everything in my life to the will of God tonight as I lay down. There's nothing, the enemy cannot get to me without going through you. Is it any wonder that Paul mentions almost to the point of being obnoxious just so many times over and over that we are found in Christ? Or Christ in you, the hope of glory. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to give you a chance to respond tonight, and um, I don't keep count. I, I probably should remember. Um, maybe again, I probably shouldn't remember. But maybe there's some here that haven't responded this week. Why? Why, why wouldn't you? I'm, I guess I'm talking to those specifically who've been here all week. If you're fed up, and maybe you're just being here for the first time tonight, I don't know. I came to a point in 1995 where I chucked religion. In fact, how aggressive I was to the guy holding the cane and how, I, how aggressive I was. and I would purposely dress just in aggressive ways. I was just so angry at the church because I felt like I'd been led astray by it. That I'd been pushed into this physical relationship with this outside God and that's never been the message God wants to move to the inner confines of your life He wants to embrace you from the inside out whatever pain, whatever struggle whatever abuse you've suffered He wants to swallow that up in His very person and renew that totally and completely He wants to teach you in the moment by moment settings of your life. He told the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'm living inside of you and it will be given to you in that moment. Would it, does that bring confidence or what? I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight. If he's speaking to you, um, run. Run. Run for this. Run and raise your hands and say, Jesus, hey, Get inside of me. Because he stands at the door and knocks. Doesn't want your money. Doesn't want 
your talents, doesn't want your ability. He wants to dwell inside of your very body. Wants to reveal to you his heart. Wants you to feel what he feels and see what he sees. Jesus, we want to respond to you tonight. Have your way. Teach us about yourself. We desperately need you in these hours. Save me, Jesus, from stepping out away from you. It's no wonder, Wesley said, one moment without you. And I'm devil. I'm a devil. We love you tonight. Altars are open if you'd like to seek.